to order. And welcome everybody here, as well as those uh, listening remotely. I'm Hal Sox. I'm substituting for Anna Tostason, whose voice took an unexpected holiday today. Um, so let me tell you a little bit about our speaker, Carrie Kala, PhD. Uh, she uh, got her bachelor's degree from Dartmouth, where she was a softball star. Um, and then she went on to UC Berkeley, where she got a, a, her doctoral degree in health services research with a minor in economics. She joined our faculty in 2010 and has been working with Ellen Merritt, John Skinner, Elliot Fisher, and Nancy Morden, and many others. Uh, she's a member of the Cancer Control Group within the Cancer Center, and her interests are in the um, under, understanding about um, how the organization of healthcare affects uh, care for cancer and payment for cancer care. She's published articles in JAMA, Health Affairs, Health Services Research, and last uh, month with Nancy Borden, an article perspective in the New England Journal. And her title today is Payment Incentives in Cancer Care, ACOs and the Physician Group Practice. Now, I'm told I have to read this for those of you, I guess, who uh, can't read. Um, I don't have any financial interest. I do not intend to discuss off-label or investigative investigational uses of a product or device, and I am not receiving direct payments from a commercial entity with respect to this activity. Actually, Carrie probably does have financial interest, but she does not have financial conflicts of interest. So over to you, Carrie. <laughs> Uh, thanks, everybody, for coming and for having me. Um, I'm happy to answer questions as I go along. If you uh, want to just raise your hand and interrupt me, that's fine. So I'm going to talk a little bit today about the background of ACOs in cancer care, a little bit about a specific research study that we did looking at the effect of some new payment incentives in the Medicare program on a subset of physician practices, one of which was Dartmouth-Hitchcock, um, and talk about results and kind of what we're doing at TDI around ACOs in cancer care now. So I probably don't need to um, tell much, many of you in the room about this uh, story about cost in cancer care increasing quickly, particularly for cancer drugs, um, recently and uh, projected to go forward as well, much faster than the inflation rate and the inflation rate of general healthcare spending. Not only is it a problem for the uh, public payers, it's also a problem for patients. As I'm sure many of you know as well, the cost of cancer care affects uh, patients and their ability to pay for other things while they're having their treatment. Even in the Medicare program, many uh, cancer treatments are subject to the 20% copay under Part B if patients don't have supplemental insurance. So putting together some things that we know about cancer care, which are that there's rising costs, like I just showed, uneven quality. The Dartmouth Atlas has uh, published an end-of-life cancer care atlas where they talk about uh, different quality measures across, across different areas and how much things like end-of-life chemotherapy vary across the United States. And they have a number of other measures as well. So we know that quality is uneven in cancer care and that incentives are poorly aligned. Much has been made of the uh, the distinction for chemotherapy drugs that many physician offices provide chemotherapy drugs and make a lot of their money in oncology on providing uh, chemotherapy drugs. So uh, for payment reform, we have a few things happening right now. Bundled payments um, are not really focused on cancer care yet, but one of the other major reforms is accountable care organizations, which you can think of as a bundle across the entire uh, total cost of care for a patient. So I'm focusing on the poorly aligned incentives. So this is CMS's definition of what is an accountable care organization. It's a group of doctors, hospitals, and other healthcare providers held accountable for both the total cost and the quality of care. So that's actually how we at TDI define when we think about ACOs. We look for those two things in a particular payment contract. So a contract between a physician group or a provider group, uh, including a hospital, for example, and a payer, such as Medicare, that includes financial responsibility for total cost of care and uh, certain quality measures. But um, what Medicare really wanted these organizations to have are three distinct uh, capabilities. 
to provide and, uh, or manage the continuum of care for patients as a real or virtually integrated delivery system. So they don't have to actually, the ACO doesn't actually have to be able to provide all of the services, they just have to be able to manage the services from a primary care standpoint. Um, are of sufficient size to support comprehensive performance measurement. This is important because of statistical noise. So to be able to say, are we uh, saving money, for example, we need to have enough patients to be able to look over time and account for that noise. And so CMS has defined this, for example, as 15,000 attributed patients broadly or 5,000 in rural areas. Um, number three, are capable of internally distributing shared savings and prospectively planning budgets and resource needs. Um, it's interesting that CMS calls this one out because our research on ACOs has shown that many of them actually do not know how to do this. So, but these are the three things Medicare calls for. The origins of, of accountable care organizations comes back to some uh, work that was done here at Dartmouth and around uh, Randolph, Vermont through the Randolph Project. And uh, Elliot Fisher sometimes is <coughs> Uh, quoted as creating part of the accountable care organization name. And through this paper uh, in Health Affairs and uh, this report in MedPAC, some of the ideas kind of coalesce around this accountable care organization concept where you're, uh, the, there's population-based based virtual budgets. The organizations can be real or virtual, so they can either be a real owned entity, such as an integrated delivery system like Dartmouth-Hitchcock, or they can be a bunch of physician group practices that are separately owned, banding together to form an ACO. Um, and the key um, tenets of ACOs are performance measurement, so both on the cost side and on the quality side, and patient choice. People often ask, what's the difference between ACOs and HMOs? And I think patient choice is one of the key factors. So in Medicare, for example, um, in, in HMO, you're often locked into a set of providers. In Medicare, you're allowed to see any provider. So that's an advantage of the model in terms of uh, perhaps having less patient backlash, like happened after the uh, HMO era. But it's harder for ACOs to be able to control their um, patient population and their pa patterns of care when patients can just go get a second opinion wherever they like at any time. Um, and so the third thing um, in both of these papers by Elliot and co-authors and MedPAC was to accommodate diversity. So to allow many different types of organizations, not just integrated delivery systems, to participate in these types of um, payment programs. This is a, a, a um, sorry, I'm forgetting the name. <laughs> this is a cartoon, there it is, uh, from the John Gruber's health reform book. I don't know if many, many of you have read it. I highly recommend it. Um, and it's just saying, what are many of the things that are included in the accountable care organization? So this is John Gruber, an economist at MIT on the left. And he says, uh, the ACA, the Affordable Care Act, took many of the best idea of a wide variety of experts as to what might work and included them all in the bill. So let's test out a lot of different things and see what works. And so we have here exchanges, the Cadillac tax, the Independent Payment Advisory Board, comparative effectiveness research, and ACOs over there on the right. So the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation was uh, started and they're trying out a lot of different things to see what works to reduce costs. So today we have 366 Medicare ACOs across the Pioneer Shared Savings and the Advanced Payment Program, um, and over 600 ACOs when you take into account commercial payers as well, and Medicaid. But back in 2009, we had only 21 ACOs. And there were only two programs that qualified for our uh, definition of accountable care programs. The first one is the Physician Group Practice Demonstration, the pink dots. Um, and you can see Dartmouth-Hitchcock here is one of the pink dots. The second major um, major program was the alternative quality contract, which was a Blue Cross Blue Shield program in Massachusetts. And so you can see here a lot of orange dots in that area. And then the third was the Brookings Dartmouth um, Learning Network project. The pilot sites are the blue dots. So we've grown from 21 sites in 2009 to 366 Medicare and so 10 Medicare to 366 Medicare and 21 total to over 600 total since 2009. So when we think back to what, what do we know about what's gonna happen with accountable care, these are the sites really at this point that we have to look at to say what's gonna happen under these programs. And so today we're gonna to talk about the physician group practice demonstration, the Medicare program. That was kind of like a pilot of some of the ideas behind accountable care. So these are the 10, um, physician groups that participated. You can see there's two academic medical centers, Michigan and, and Dartmouth, and uh, many different types of organizations. I can talk more about this as we go along. But Middlesex, for example, is a bunch of um, 43 physician practices that banded together to uh, become a, um, a participant in this. 
uh, many other nice, uh, sites that you probably recognize, integrated delivery systems, um, or big names such as Geisinger and Marshfield. One thing that's important to mention here is that these were chosen competitively through applying to Medicare. So these are not randomly selected. These are um, selected by Medicare, either for geographic diversity, diversity of organizational programs, or because uh, they thought they were likely to succeed. So as I said, 10 systems, diverse locations. The goals of this program for Medicare were very similar to many of the goals of reform. Encourage coordination, promote cost efficiency, and reward physicians for improving health outcomes through performance measurement. The incentives in the physician group practice demonstration were slightly different than the incentives in the programs today. And I can talk more about what the incentives are like in the programs today towards the end. But in this case, what they did was they used um, I think I have it here, the 2004 spending and trended it forward using the growth rate in a local comparison group. So <coughs> patients are assigned to either Dartmouth-Hitchcock, local patients are assigned to either Dartmouth-Hitchcock or a, um, pr a provider group in the surrounding area. And the surrounding area trend is used after risk adjustment to trend forward Dartmouth-Hitchcock's 2004 spending, for example, to set a benchmark. And in the physician group practice demonstration, <coughs> providers received 80% of the shared savings, the money they saved for Medicare, back to the provider groups, such as Dartmouth-Hitchcock. This is much higher than the savings rates we see today, which are more like 50 or 60% going back to the provider group. Um, and then the 2% threshold is just, again, for the statistical <coughs> noise, to say what's real savings. Once you get over that 2% threshold, we consider it to be real savings, and then we um, start to give you savings, start to give you uh, payments back. Um, this is a detail of the risk adjustment, but it's actually a very important detail. So they use the HCC scores, or hierarchical condition categories, in the physician group practice demonstration. And they realized about halfway through that what this was doing was increasing the accuracy of coding in organizations that were participating in the program, more so than in the organizations that were not participating. So not only were you, incent you were incentivized to code better and code more if you were participating, but they were using this um, local uh, comparison group, which, di which didn't have the same incentives. And so they saw increases in uh, coding, which I don't think I put in today, but um, we saw statistically significant increases in coding in the sites that were participating, and I can talk a little bit more about that. It doesn't, it mattered for the overall results quite a bit, but not as much in the cancer um, results. So if you're Dartmouth-Hitchcock, for example, or you're any ACO and you're thinking about what are you going to do in response to these new payment incentives where you might be paid back some money at the end of the year if you share, if you uh, create savings for the Medicare program or whoever the payer is? Um, you can invest heavily within the institution to change clinical practice. This is what's hoped for, for the programs. Practice redesign, we've heard a lot about. And um, these are large fixed costs to invest in some things like health IT. In addition, it, this program, one of the goals was to reimburse things that are not traditionally reimbursed under fee-for-service medicine, things like email care, um, things like that, that we could, uh, if you're hoping to get shared savings, you might, if you're thinking about having a patient come in versus giving them a phone call, you might be more willing to just do the phone call, for example. You could do any, not do anything and hope that the institution wins the lottery, hope that the numbers work out right and you get some money back. You can optimize risk adjustment coding or HCC coding. And which option you choose depends on a lot of characteristics about the ACO itself. Whether the provider owns a cancer center, for example. Um, two of them own ma major cancer centers. Others are near major cancer centers. And so you would expect that the ACO would not get the uh, patients who wanted to go to the comprehensive cancer center, the NCI center, for example, like Fred Hutchinson. Um, whether you own a hospital or not, whether you own post-acute providers, the incentives are different for the ACO depending on whether they have a stake in the revenue from these types of organizations. Um, whether or not you contract or own uh, specialty practices, the proportion of patients under ACO contract, this is something we've heard a lot about now. Providers are trying to make changes in response to the ACO incentives, but they're finding that they're not getting enough payment patients under these types of new contracts to make it worthwhile for them to make broad-based practice changes. And so one of the complaints from um, some of the big organizations that are participating in these programs is that they, they can't get the other payers on board fast enough to incentivize them to make the changes that they'd like to make. Um, the degree of integration, uh, whether you have salaried physicians, physician compensation within the practice. So these are all the incentives I'm talking about today are between the payer and the provider group. 
I'm not talking at all today about what the incentives are at the physician level, whether they're paid on RVUs or not, for example, at the physician level. If you're paying from the payer to the provider, shared savings, but the physicians are still being paid on RVUs, it's a difference um, in incentives and they're misaligned. And the size of the system. You can imagine that some of these um, costs of implementing change are fixed, such as putting in a new health IT system. So if you have a larger system, more patients to spread those costs across, you, uh, costs across, you might be more willing to make those big changes. Tara, yeah. on, on the incentives, if mm -hmm. the, the pass-through of savings, mm -hmm. that's cash, <coughs> it's not uh, restricted to certain allowable costs? Um, the, what do you mean? It's a payment that goes to the provider, the system, uh, to their bottom line. It's not targeted to offset costs for certain areas. No. It's money that's just given back to the providers. And Dartmouth Hitchcock made uh, quite a bit of money back during this uh, demonstration. I think maybe 50 million, but I think that might be too high. I, uh, I don't know if I have it in here today, but it's easy to find online. Um, so our research questions today are really going to focus on, uh, I'm going to tell you a little bit about the overall results, but I'm going to focus more on the cancer uh, results for today. So did PGP sites reduce spending in comparison to the uh, surrounding physician practices? In which categories of spending were savings achieved, such as acute care versus cancer-specific care like surgery or chemotherapy? Uh, did, and did the demonstration impact end-of-life care, particularly important for cancer? Do we see more, more or less patients dying in the hospital? Do we see better or worse use of hospice, et cetera? Um, so what are the hypotheses that we might expect to have um, with this change in payment between the payer and the provider group? We might expect to see increases in screening. Under the physician group practice demonstration, two of the 33 quality measures had to do with cancer screening, breast and colon. Um, so we might expect to see increases in screening. We might expect to see earlier referral to hospice. Um, this is a, a very specific difference between this demonstration and the current programs. But in this demonstration, if you were referred to hospice, you were actually sort of dropped from the roles of the, um, you didn't count anymore for the physician group for the benchmark. So if you, if you had a very expensive cancer patient at the end of life and you referred them to hospice, they actually, all of those high end of life costs actually didn't count against you. Um, and so you might expect to see earlier referral to hospice. Uh, changes in treatment decisions and overall utilization, reductions in death in the acute care hospital I mentioned, uh, or reductions in use of discretionary imaging. I think some of the um, interesting details around ACOs and cancer care um, get very into the details of these payment incentives, but selection, for example. So here we are at a, a comprehensive cancer center. We might expect to see different groups of patients coming here than to surrounding areas. So what does it mean that, we're, that they're using local controls um, in this demonstration? Uh, implications of incentive design, whether in this demonstration they capped spending at $100,000. So once a patient was past $100,000, might as well spend as much as you want on them because they're still coming in at $100,000. It's not like that anymore. Um, it's now capped at a percentage of the, of the average. Um, some tricks around assignment. Uh, now you are assigned to a primary care doctor only, unless less than 10% of your expenditures are to a, or your evaluation and management um, Part B costs are to a primary care doctor, and then you can actually be assigned to an oncologist. So there are some things around assignment that you can play with. Um, and today, there's no cancer quality metrics in the Medicare program. So really, in terms of cancer care, your incentives are to cut costs, and they're not measuring quality if you think about it from a cancer-specific aspect. So how might you expect ACOs to uh, impact cancer care? So some of the techniques for improving care while reducing costs for cancer. Um, proactive management to prevent complications. Shared decision-making and personalized medicine. We know a lot about here at Dartmouth. Um, focus on effective care. Uh, this is also gaining a lot of traction in cancer care, such as guidelines or pathways. Efficient use of acute care in particular, uh, or co coordination of care across clinicians and settings. Better communication, better health IT. So moving to the methods of what we did using Medicare data. So we're going to use Medicare administrative claims data from 2001 to 2009. We have, at TDI, we have 20% data for the entire Medicare program up through 2005, and then 100% data for the entire population from 2006 to 2009. 
We assign patients to the physician group based on the care patterns, based on a set of evaluation and management codes, whatever practice you had the um, most of your evaluation and management visits at is the practice you're assigned to. This was done um, explicitly the same way that Medicare did it in the program. And then we create a local control group for each participating site. So for cancer, we're gonna look at a prevalent cohort today because um, the sizes were the sample sizes were too small to look at incident cohorts. So how do we define a prevalent cancer cohort? More than one inpatient claim with a cancer diagnosis or two outpatient um, diagnoses with the, uh, the same cancer um, diagnosis that are at least a week apart. So that's to rule out, for example, getting a test to see if you have cancer, you have a diagnosis on the test that wouldn't show up here in the, in the cancer cohort. Um, and we use the chronic conditions warehouse to define these and excluded skin cancer. Um, some important details. The proportion with prevalent cancer differed by participating site quite a bit from 8.3 to 15.8 um, across the 10, the 10 sites. And you can see that uh, 15.8 was Michigan, second highest was Dartmouth-Hitchcock. So the, the academic medical centers are coming in with much higher proportions of cancer patients. Um, and it, so because of that, it was higher in the participants than in the control groups because of those two locations. And here's a, here's a graph of Dartmouth's market share basically in cancer. So the darker areas are where 77 to 91% of the, of the patients in that zip code with cancer are going to Dartmouth-Hitchcock. And you can see that it, it um, is darker down here where we have some North Cotton sites and also up by St. Johnsbury and then um, centered around Hanover and Lebanon, just to get an idea of our catchment area. Why do you exclude skin cancer? Um, good question. Because... Uh, it's a, a little bit less homogeneous than some of the other cancers in terms of the patient groups. And um, that's the main, the main reason I would say. It's, it's pretty common in a lot of the cancer. Uh, it's just, a, it's a little bit different. It's a better question for a clinician, but that's what I'm told. <laughs> um, and so what, the other thing I wanted to say about this is just, we're including in the catchment area, any county that provides at least 1% of Dartmouth-Hitchcock's patients. So the catchment area is actually quite wide um, for each of the practices. And then we weight the counties based on the proportion of patients that are um, attributed to the participating site. So today we're gonna look at total spending, um, spending by category groups such as acute care, referral to hospice, hospice days, ICU days, hospital days, hospital visits, um, mortality and death in the hospital. So these are all utilization-based measures using Medicare data. We're not observing any clinical data here. So these are the things we control for, everything we basically can using uh, claims. I'm not gonna focus a ton on the risk adjustment measures today uh, because they don't matter for the cancer care, but we basically use the HCC scores, but we knew that there were problems with the coding um, in those scores, and so uh, for the overall results, it makes a big difference. We tried to use what we call low variation condition rates, which are, um, you, coding doesn't really differ for a hip fracture or not. You either have it or you don't, for example, and that's the idea behind using these low variation cohorts. <coughs> for the cancer analyses, we're gonna control for a cancer type and then an indicator for metastatic. We don't have any other stage indicators in the Medicare data, um, so that's a weakness of the, of the study. We're using a difference in difference design. So we're using data from 2001 to 2005 as the pre-period, and then 2006 to 2009, sorry, 2005 to 2009 as the post-period um, when the demonstration went into effect. And looking at basically the difference um, in the participants compared to the uh, difference in the control groups, the local control groups over that time period. So we have two papers. This first paper is on the overall results and the paper on the right is on the cancer results and I'm gonna focus mostly on the cancer results today. So here's our cancer cohort, uh, the mean age. This is, so this is across all 10 participant sites and then across all the controls which are local groups around each of the 10 sites. Um, and you can see overall, the main thing you wanna look here for a difference in different studies to say, are they similar in the baseline period um, to be able to compare over time. And um, so you can see the, our biggest in this prevalent cancer cohort, the biggest ones are prostate and breast, and then going down much smaller to colon. And then you can see um, the rest of the cancers that make up um, our cohort. And there are more down here. There's 43 total, but I uh, cut it off at 3%. Here's specific to Dartmouth-Hitchcock, participants and controls. 
So you can see here that compared to um, cancer patients who are assigned to other practices, uh, patients here are younger, um, slightly more likely to be female, more likely to have Medicaid, um, same in terms of black um, race, uh, and slightly more, slightly more likely to have metastatic cancer. Less likely to have Medicare. Yeah. So these are Medicare patients. Did, All Medicare beneficiaries. Is the proportion of Medicare patients in these centers different from in controls? So I can't measure that because I don't have the universe. I only have the Medicare beneficiaries. You can actually get some information about hospitalizations, at least on hospital cost reports, on what proportion of their 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 discharges are Medicare patients. But because these are physician practices and not necessarily hospitals, we can't we can't measure that at all. We would need all payer data, for example, which we have here in New Hampshire. But it's a good question. Um, so here's a quick summary of the overall results. So you can see all beneficiaries are down here across the time period. And um, here we have the participants are the triangles and the controls are the squares. And so the dotted lines are unadjusted and the solid lines are the predicted. And what this means is that our, our model is working pretty well to predict the unadjusted uh, spending, spending rates. And uh, so you can kind of get a sense here for uh, what's happening. <coughs> There's no real change here, uh, is, is what you can see um, in the all beneficiaries. You can see a slight bend here for dual eligible, those are who are eligible for Medicare and Medicaid, and a slight bend here for beneficiaries with cancer. It also gives you a sense of the magnitudes. Um, on average, these patients cost about $7,500 a year over the time period, whereas cancer patients are up there much higher, and duals are in between. Sorry, and I should say this line here is uh, when the PGP went into effect, so when the uh, payment incentives changed to the right there. And here's, just to give you a sense for wh where is this spending coming from, a huge portion of it is acute care. So cancer spending uh, over, I think this is actually just yet, 2009, um, was almost $20,000 for one Medicare beneficiary with prevalent cancer. Uh, 7,000 of that is going to acute care um, with some other categories here that are important uh, for cancer care. Uh, and host acute care is also a pretty big group. This is specific to Dartmouth-Hitchcock. So Dartmouth-Hitchcock has only slightly higher costs than the mean of the, uh, of the entire demonstration. And they're split kind of across the board. There's not one area that's much higher. So these are the overall results varying the uh, scheme, risk adjustment scheme used on the bottom. So demographics only. HCC, and then this is the low variation condition cohort where we um, only control for things that we think are stable over time. And so you can see overall, using demographics only, we see $71 of savings, but I think you can't really tell if it's significant there or not. Here we see $114 saved on average per person, per Medicare beneficiary per year um, overall in the demonstration. But as you get to the cancer patients, you see it's much higher, 693 or 720, but you can see the risk adjustment scheme doesn't matter a ton between the different uh, between the different bars. So per cancer patient per year, about $700 in savings from the PGP. These are the site-specific um, results, and you can see here Michigan, which was really an outlier in how well they did, uh, saved $3,500 per person per year in cancer uh, prevalent cancer patients, mostly from we'll see in a minute, but mostly from savings in acute care. Here's Dartmouth-Hitchcock, um, saved $385 per person per year in the um, demonstration period, but no savings overall. So where do these savings come from? We can look at the categories of care to get a sense for where changes are being made or might be being made. And it looks like um, all of the savings are coming from the acute care setting. In terms of cancer-specific spending, which includes cancer-specific procedures, treatments, and chemotherapy, we're actually seeing a slight increase in spending in the, um, in the participants relative to the controls over the time period. No changes in imaging or procedures. So basically, all acute care spending. So changes in uh, admission patterns, basically, uh, is, what, is what we see. And there's some evidence to support that uh, these provider groups were thinking about that, particularly in Michigan, um, with respect to their admission policies. Um, here's a little bit more detail on the results. So um, if the overall effect was 720, that number I just showed, 737 uh, of acute care spending, higher cancer care spending. Um, you can see Dartmouth-Hitchcock's lines here, $385 overall. Um, 
$508 in acute care savings, slightly higher, uh, similar to the rest of the practices on the cancer care, on the specific cancer care. And um, many of these are significant on the bottom. I only put the asterisks on the first line. Uh, so here are some of the other uh, utilization-based outcomes we're uh, able to look at. We actually saw that mortality decreased in the producing pink groups relative to the control groups during this time period. And I, I wasn't exactly sure what to make about this. Mostly I wanted to see that there were no adverse consequences for mortality. It could be that the participants were adopting new technologies faster during this period. But we see in Dartmouth-Hitchcock as well about the same uh, lower mortality during this time period. <coughs> Uh, no significant difference overall in death and hospital. Decreased use of hospice, which was surprising uh, during this time period in participants. Um, not only decreased use, but fewer hospice days for those who were referred. Um, fewer ICU days and fewer hospital discharges. So it wasn't just that they were, um, so they were changing. It wasn't just different types of stays. The reason we wanted to look at the hospital discharges, it could just be different types of stays that were cheaper, but we also see that it was fewer discharges per patient. This data is not from our, uh, our data. This is reported by CMS, and it's just to show that across the, the quality measures that I mentioned, there were 32, two of which were specific to cancer. We saw quality go up quite a bit during the demonstration. So on average, it was 90% in year one with a range of 73 to 100. But by the end of the demonstration, the average was 99% across these quality measures, and the range was only 96 to 100. So this plays into our um, our conclusions a little bit because we see that um, CMS saved some money in this demonstration while improving quality based on the measures that they were measuring and reporting. Um, the significant savings were from acute care. We saw no adverse effect on mortality, no effect on death in the hospital, a negative effect on hospice use, which was surprising to us, um, a negative effect on hospital discharges, hospital days, and ICU days. So implications and next steps. So I mentioned we have 366 Medicare ACOs now. Oh, sorry. This is a little bit about what I already said. Quality improved at little or no cost to CMS. Changed use of the hospital. Um, and then these two last things are really important to keep in mind. So the conclusions on success factors were limited by sample size. At the end of the day, we have 10 practices that were participating in this program. So what we can say about what they did that worked is very limited because we um, can't really, when we look at it, the one thing that pops out is size. The bigger, the bigger um, physician groups did save more money, but that's really the only thing that we can, we can say. Um, and it's hard to even, even say that because there's a number of things we can't control for in terms of success factors. Uh, and um, also just to point out that there was great heterogeneity in response to incentives. We saw huge savings in Michigan, which are really um, pushing the results in that direction, whereas other um, institutions actually spent more money during the demonstration and didn't save at all. So what's happening today? Uh, in terms of accountable care organizations, we've seen some cancer-specific ACOs pop up, such as this one in Florida, which Moffitt Cancer Center is part of. Um, there's also many primary care-focused ACOs, which cancer centers may be part of, such as the one at Dartmouth-Hitchcock. Um, and so the options for cancer uh, centers or for oncology practices, generally speaking, are to be part of an ACO through an integrated delivery system or multi-specialty group, or to have contracts with the ACOs and try to be the ACOs' preferred providers in a way. Um, and here's a prediction from a JOP article about ACOs. Referral patterns will change towards oncology specialists who share a common vision for low-cost, high-quality patient care. And one of the things we saw in the alternative quality contract, which was the um, Blue Cross Blue Shield program in Massachusetts, was that they didn't actually change utilization very much in those commercial populations. But keep in mind, in Medicare here, we're looking at programs with fixed prices. One of the things that they did, um, fixed, regulated by Medicare. In the commercial sector, one of the things that they did was to change the referral patterns. So the physicians in these participating groups in Massachusetts were referring their patients to lower cost providers. So basically staying away from partners healthcare in the Boston area and trying to like get the MRIs at lower cost providers. And you really see price responses um, in the referral, referral patterns, which we might expect to see here. Um, other options for payment innovation in oncology currently kind of being explored, both in the commercial and in the um, public sector, are oncology medical homes or care management fees, guideline or pathway-based care, Aetna and US Oncology are doing some pilot studies that have shown equal or better outcomes with lower emergency department um, and inpatient admissions and lower costs overall with equal 
um, outcomes that we can observe. And um, United Healthcare is doing a pilot of bundled payments for specifically around chemotherapy regimens. So the other things we're doing at TDI, we have the national survey of ACOs at TDI where we're asking a lot of questions about what ACOs are doing in terms of who's part of them and then also what are their capabilities uh, like. So, um, and we're also using qualitative research to ask about these things through surveys and site visits. Uh, so we're asking who's forming ACOs, what strategies are they using, and eventually soon we'll be able to say how are they performing and how do these characteristics and capabilities matter for how they're performing. A little bit of um, teaser information from our national survey of ACOs. Um, we ask about whether they have a hospice program in the ACO, and actually 42% of the early ACOs have a hospice program within the ACO. Um, and then an additional 22% have a contract with a hospice provider. And then another important cancer-relevant question is, does your ACO have established processes or protocols for identifying, counseling, and planning for end-of-life care? Um, only 15% say that they have no or few processes. Most say they have some processes around planning for end-of-life care. And we'll be able to see um, if this changes over time as well. Yeah. <laughs> On that last question, is it just a yes-no answer of self-reporting? No, um, we use behavioral anchoring techniques. So we have, it's a one through nine scale, and we say under each category what that might look like and give examples of, of what it could be for each of the capabilities. A good question. So basically, I'm grouping here zero to three and not saying, you know, yeah. shortening what they say, um, four to six, seven to nine. Um, so I just wanted to acknowledge my co-authors and uh, Priority Pilot Grant funded a lot of this uh, additional research in trying to like uh, start looking at cancer care and ACOs and it's something I hope to continue to do uh, under the new program. So uh, thanks for that and I'm happy to take more questions. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit more about the ACO that Moffitt is involved in? Because they are a PPS exempt cancer center mm -hmm. are subject to DRG payments. So, uh, and what, what do you think is the... Um, the future for PPS-exempt cancer centers and an ACO as ACOs expand? Um, it's a good question. I gave a talk at Dana-Farber, and they're thinking about this a lot. Um, so that ACO that I mentioned that Moffitt is part of is a commercial ACO. And um, so that's just with Blue Cross Blue Shield. So they're not participating in the Medicare programs okay. um, yet at all. And so I think that um, in terms of the PPS-exempt, there's a few things. Keep in mind that that's for, um, for the hospital payments um, and then I think it's also just I've heard people say like we want to be the preferred partner and so having they're thinking about that also in conjunction with the PPS exempt status and I think um, the exempt cancer centers are just starting to think about this from what I can tell but uh, yeah I don't have a whole lot more to say that's I think a, a good summary I, I have a question it's okay. actually not for you Carrie but for Bob uh -huh. How much, how much of an intervention was there at the sort of the cancer center level uh, to try to, to try to make changes? Uh, were the were the oncologists aware that there were uh, a big a big push on to not only raise quality but also uh, moderate costs? So I'm, I'm more on Carrie's side of the house, but maybe Brad or I was going to say there's probably lots of people in the could speak to that. Um, uh, no. Yeah. No. <laughs> From so what you, I've heard, it was unaware. Yeah. So you guys were basically clueless that something was going on. Well, we're never clueless. Yeah. Oh, of course. <laughs> <laughs> we were aware of some more coding activity, I would say. Right. Where that fit in, I'm not quite sure. And we see that in the in the numbers. But was there a more push, for example, to refer patients to hospitals when they got to a certain stage in their illness, or was it? strictly up to the uh, physician and uh, other providers to make that decision. Yeah, I'd say it was business as usual, and there certainly wasn't a call out or an identification of patients who were part of the, the project and those who weren't. Um, so, I mean, that's that's a general trend anyway, mm -hmm. um, but not one that was linked in any way to this, um, to the project and our potential to win big. Do you have a sense for what proportion of the cancer center patients are on Medicare? Uh, I guess 60. 60 62% maybe? Yeah, about 60%. Do you, 
you have any comment on the sort of impact the ACO model will make on clinical translational research in the cancer sector? Um, so I think actually that uh, one of the ways that I think about this in the context of translational medicine and research is that these are population level policies that are going to impact the clinical practice, right? So between, it's sort of like T4 affecting T3. Um, and so if you're, my question would be, what are the practice level changes that organizations are going to make in response to these um, overarching changes in incentives? Because really what we're talking about here is a change in, in payment. But all of these changes in practice are hypothesized to um, go with the change in payment. And then from there, again, you'll see, if we see changes in practice, we'll want to see what are the effects are on the population um, at large. And so here I showed kind of what the results are on the population within the 10 practices, but didn't extrapolate to what it would have been um, on a national level. Does that answer your question? I have Michigan and Dartmouth have the highest percentage. You have the two big centers, which I assume Michigan is an NCI cancer center. One of the missions within the clinical realm is to promote clinical translational science. I'm just wondering what sort of impact this low-cost, high-quality initiative is going to have on On the desire to promote translational research? Yeah, on the ability to put people into studies. Good question. I think, I think if you enter into a clinical trial, you might be exempt from the Medicare dockets. Does anyone know if that's true? That's true. The standard of care that gets paid. I'm not sure that they know. But I, I have a related question. So is there any indication of what the cost per Medicare case was that it might have differed where in a more intense research setting than in a, a less intense research setting? So basically what you're saying is like for that pie chart that I showed, I showed Dartmouth Hitchcock. So what would that look like for the local controls? Is that what you're asking? <coughs> Let me try to go there. So at Dartmouth Hitchcock, the spending was um, 19,821 in 2009. But across the 10 sites and their controls, it was 19,750. So not that different. I mean, one might speculate that end-of-life care could be impacted if you have in, a, in an aggressive academic research institution where they're trying out new therapeutics, often targeted at the sickest patients. Mm -hmm. I wonder if that would be a disincentive. Yep. I, I had another question about oh, sorry, go ahead, care. I mean, are, are you doing sort of a decedent analysis here? Or no, here, no. Yeah. These, these are just people with cancer, prevalent cancer. Okay. Um, and so we haven't done a decedent analysis. I think the ends would probably get pretty small um, across 10 sites if we tried to just look at the people who died with cancer, for example. And so I, I, I've thought about pursuing more um, cancer-specific analyses like about treatment decisions with these, um, with these cohorts under the demonstration, but I actually just think we'll be much better served to wait a year or two and be able to do them with a much larger population of, of practices. Um, than to try to get into sort of nitty-gritty stuff with only 10 practices and their patients. You have essentially a 10% mortality rate in this study. Did I have that on, on the oh, slide? I had it at one point. Uh, it's not here at this time. Yeah, okay. um, I, I can't remember. I think it's higher than that, but I can't remember. Brad? Sorry, I should have had that. Can you that go back okay. to the, uh, the pie thing? So? Yeah. So I was struggling with um, how small the chemotherapy number is, which, mm -hmm. is, which you know, basically is the amount of money it costs for the pre-meds for one cycle, um, and, I'm, and without even getting, getting to the chemotherapy part yet. Um, and, and that leads me to ask about the exclusions. So the, the, who's excluded again here? Only skin cancer. So no, keep no, no, in mind no, that- In terms of cost. Uh, above oh, the cap. no, actually, I left the people in above the cap. So it's not that. In this, I did it both ways, and it didn't matter. Um, keep in mind, this is in a prevalent cohort, so people who are not actively being treated for cancer. How, how um, did you define so that again? I'm sorry. One inpatient stay with a um, cancer diagnosis for a given year, <coughs> or two outpatient, outpatient visits at least a week apart with a stay. So think about prostate cancer. 
how people can live with prostate cancer for years and not be actively treated. That's our biggest cohort in here. So the acute so, care may have been for a heart attack. Yes. This is overall spending, not cancer-specific acute care. The only ones that we're able to get more cancer-specific is about the chemotherapy and then the cancer-specific procedures and treatments. Mm -hmm. It seems like a lot of these incentives for cutting costs at the hospital level to the, the patient is for Medicare patients only since you're being reimbursed by the government. Is there any push to improve quality of care and cost for non-Medicare-based patients? Yeah, so Dartmouth-Hitchcock is part of the Pioneer Program, and one of the regulations in the Pioneer Program is that at least 50% of the non-Medicare patients have to be on accountable care contracts by year three, which is coming up pretty quickly. And I know, I don't know about Dartmouth-Hitchcock, but I know generally speaking, providers are having trouble getting to that mark, um, and policymakers are thinking a lot about how to push the payers. To the commercial payers to get on board more because um, there's a really interesting article by Arnie Milstein and Steve Shortell in, I think it's in JAMA, it's a viewpoint, but it talks about at ThetaCare, um, Bell and ThetaCare, how they're, have, they want to make these changes, but because they haven't sort of, if you think about like a tipping point where more of your patients are on these types of contracts, they feel that they haven't reached that yet. Um, because the commercial payers are not willing to engage on these types of contracts. So we see that we see many commercial contracts. We measure them in our survey. And so and we hear that there's um, about 600 ACOs, and we know that there's only 306 Medicare ones. So there's many ACOs that have contracts either just with commercial or just with Medicaid as well. But um, I think that that's a, a big part of making this work is to, um, I mean, we can't stratify our treatments of different types of patients. And so. Uh, aligning the incentives across different payers is important. So I, I think back to the question that you asked us a few minutes ago uh, about our engagement or knowledge uh, mm -hmm. at the practice level uh, for this initiative. And it was pretty obvious that it was you know, sort of passive. Uh, our knowledge was passive that this was going on. And then I look at the results from locations like University of Michigan, which had terrific results. And I'm wondering, and then Geisinger, they didn't have terrific results. And, mm -hmm. People often point to Geisinger as sort of the, the gold standard in terms of how, how to effectively and efficiently run physician practices. But that being said, I'm wondering if you've tested the awareness or knowledge base of participant of practicing physicians in, in locations of those participants as part of your study. We haven't. So this study that we did of the physician group practice demonstration was just the quantitative data from the Medicare claims. Um, RTI International did some qualitative research funded by the Commonwealth Fund, which you, I've read, it's online, um, which talked about different uh, strategies in different places or different engagement. And we're working on doing that with the new ACOs, but it's not something we did in conjunction with this study. And so it's hard, to, as I was saying, it's hard to talk about what works. Um, yeah, because because I, I, that. I believe that it's going to be a behavior change that's going to take place in order to start to extract costs out of a system. We're going to have to consciously be aware of whether it be ordering, uh, referring patients to hospice sooner versus later, you know, it's going to have to be a, a true behavior um, approach based on this sort of data and knowledge. Yeah. Yeah, and just just thinking about just it, it, your con the control group here is the the region, so uh, a system that has more ties with the region, they're both doing the same things theoretically would have fewer changes in your system, even though they both might, costs might be dropping over time. Right, so uh, let me just give an example of what you're saying. So if Dartmouth-Hitchcock is treating a patient that's not assigned to Dartmouth-Hitchcock, they're uh, also going elsewhere for their primary care, for example, and so they're um, assigned somewhere else. In this study design, it would it would look like Dartmouth-Hitchcock was not making a difference because the changes would be taking place in the control group at the same time. Um, the study design is a little bit different in the programs now. Uh, they're based on national control groups, not local control groups. So um, assuming that more and more programs are joining, it makes sense that you can't continue to have these local control groups. There would be no local control group left in Boston because all of the major systems are part of these programs. Judy? So does that mean if, you, if there's a lot of crossover between the local controls referring up to the cancer center, that the costs are attributed back to the local control? It's all based on evaluation and management visits. So um, in the physician group practice demonstration, you could have been assigned to a specialist if you were seeing um, a, a specialist like at Dartmouth-Hitchcock, for example, for, the, for most of your evaluation and management visits. 
Um, but it can, you can, you know, it can be 49% are at Dartmouth-Hitchcock and 51% are elsewhere and you're assigned elsewhere, um, if you think about it that way. So you, you definitely can be seeing providers in Dartmouth-Hitchcock or any participant and outside. Um, so there's contamination in a sense yeah. that way. It's is based, that a problem? Is there much crossover? Um, I haven't looked at that actually, and we could we could study that. Like what for those who are assigned, what are their loyalties? Essentially, is one way to think about it. What's their loyalty to Dartmouth Hitchcock? Um, what percent of their at least E and M or total costs are to Dartmouth Hitchcock? I think that's an important number for ACOs to think about going forward. They think about how much of a patient's cost do they actually control in a sense through it being provided at their at their center. But I haven't looked. Um, it's all data. What I was thinking was that the, low, the more complicated patients from from the control group would be more likely to be referred and be expensive in the cancer center. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure how that would. So it just depends on how they're assigned, um, whether they're assigned to Dartmouth Hitchcock because they're coming here for you know more than 50% of those types of visits or they're. And, I mean, what we're talking about is a really important part of ACOs, attribution methodology is what it's called. And it really makes a big difference in what the incentives are, uh, small details in the attribution methodology. And so what we chose to do here was simply to replicate the way Medicare did it under this demonstration. And it's changed a little bit now. But looking at um, those different attribution methodologies for cancer patients in particular is really interesting, I think. In some sense, it's almost like an exercise in cost shifting. The patient comes to DH, DH is geared up to try to improve the amount of care that's actually occurring locally. Mm -hmm. And so their costs go down at the same time the local costs go up. So it'd be quite a bias. Uh, or they say, or the oncologist in, in says, keep seeing the, your primary care doctor while you're coming to. Right, right, right. <laughs> Bob? So okay, this is therapeutic services for diagnosed cases. It's not just therapeutic. So in this category, it's therapeutic, but everywhere else, it's all the, anyone with prevalent cancers costs. But with, can you look at all at uh, primary care, whether there were differences in uh, pri uh, primary or secondary prevention, uh, given the presence of the model, of the payment system? So you mean screening? Is that right. what you mean? Um, or so or prevention. Yeah, so the, um, we can only do claims-based things, which really, really limits us. And um, so Medicare put out the results about uh, breast and colorectal cancer screening, and so we didn't look at any of that here, but, you, um, but I think they went up because they were being measured and paid for. Um, I showed the average, I didn't show it for Dartmouth-Hitchcock, but. Well, it sounds like it's uh, time to give Carrie a hand, and also thanks to you. Thanks for your interest. <laughs>